Turn with me, Exodus chapter 24, if you're visiting with us, or you're and being here a while, we're going verse by verse to the book of Exodus. I'm going to cover the latter half of the 24th chapter, Exodus chapter 24, starting with verse 9, 24, starting with verse 9. couple pages turning, assuming you're almost there. Starting with verse 9, then Moses went up. Also Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. Aren't sapphires beautiful? Probably done like this. And it was like the very heavens in clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, and be there. Interesting words, huh? And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua. And Moses went up to the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you, If any man has a difficulty, let them go to him, or let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud, went up into the mountain, And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom, the understanding, the conviction, even the clarity, Lord, to not only understand, Lord, but to know what it is that you want us individually to apply in our own lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, Drawn to devotion. Drawn to devotion. And uh, divided our text we'll look at this morning into three things. Deity, delegation, and design. Deity, delegation, and design. When you see the previous few verses, if you're here with us last week, Uh, you know that kind of what has taken place in successive order, if you go back to the 20th chapter, uh, God speaks audibly to everyone the Ten Commandments, right? Earth shakes, lightning, all kinds of uh, power. And then God speaks to Moses the individual rules, regulations, judgments that will actually be given to the elders for the way that they would 
uh, govern the nation, the way they would govern the peoples, the way they would uh, govern the uh, problems that arise. And, and then uh, he reminds them in chapter 23 that the angel will go before them. And this angel, as we look at it, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways Jesus manifests himself in the scriptures. And so then in the 24th chapter last week, uh, then Moses is reiterating everything. He has written it all down. He rereads everything back to the people. And remember, not only once, but twice, they say, yes, we will obey the Lord. And then God consecrates this covenant relationship. This, uh, they are entered into a covenant relationship. The covenant was created by God, designed by God, and then the covenant, remember, uh, was signified with the blood was sprinkled on the people, right? So that kind of brings us up to where we're at here. And Then what takes place here is Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and the 70 elders, they actually go up the mountain, at least to a certain point, together. God says, come up a little closer. Come up to me. God wants to draw us all closer. Now, not everybody wants to come closer. You yourself know in your heart if you want to draw closer. If you don't know, God knows. Because <laughs> a lot of times, even things we can't figure out, God already knows. He actually knows what we think more than we think it. He goes to the depths of what we truly believe, what we truly desire. Because you can never pull one on God. Oh, Lord, I want to be so close to you. God says, no, you don't. There's times when we do. But is that, is that where we're at? And so he bids them to come closer. And, and when they come closer, they begin to go up, the, the elders along with Moses, and they go up the mountain, and they've got to be stunned with what they end up seeing. They didn't really, I mean, just come up the mountain, we're going to worship, and then out of the blue, literally, <laughs> so uh, there is standing what I believe, and I would say many other uh, pastors, Bibles, is none other than the Lord Jesus, Jesus himself glorified, standing there. Standing, I don't know if he stood on the mountain and the mountain became sapphire, at least the area around him, or if he's standing in, it doesn't tell us, if he's standing in the sky, which is not hard for Jesus, he will stand on the clouds one day. He already stood on the waters. Uh, it, it, wherever he's standing, underneath him becomes sapphire stone. Anyone ever seen this before? This is a revelation of the Lord Jesus that very few in history have ever seen, but these men witness it face to face. Now, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, he said, speaking of Jesus, he who is the blessed and only potentate, sovereign ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, now listen to this, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power, amen. Now, what, that, what does all that mean? Jesus can reveal himself in any form that 
speaks to his deity. Any form that glorifies him, the Father, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. But there is the manifestation of God the Father that no man can look upon and live. Right? You could not look... In our, in our natural sinful state, it's impossible to look upon a holy God in all of his glory and live. You just melt away. So God actually will reveal himself through who? His son, Jesus. But Jesus can also reveal himself as the Father, and if he does, no man can even see that. Unapproachable light. No man, Paul writes this to Timothy, making clear, doctrinally, Timothy, Jesus is the Father, and if he reveals himself as the Father, you can't even look upon him. But if he reveals himself as King of Kings, or the Captain of the Lord's army, or angel of the Lord, you can look upon him. Or at least his feet, right? Because that's what we see here. At least the feet, if nothing else. Now Moses, later in Exodus chapter 33, when we get to the 33rd chapter, Moses gets an opportunity to see a glimpse of God the Father, but he can only see the rear, because God says, I'll hide you in the cleft, I'll say, let you see a little bit Basically, kind of maybe what the prophet saw, the train of the robe, a little bit of the rear of God, his glory. And just a little bit. It was enough that when we get to the 33rd chapter, Moses' face will glow for quite some time, won't it? Just that little glimpse. Back in the 23rd chapter, we saw God's angel, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, leading the, leading the Israelites. And what was the angel doing? Well, the angel was going to lead them safely, give them counsel, remove their adversaries. That picture, if you remember, is the picture of a good shepherd, right? One that will lead them beside still waters, one that will give guidance, give counsel, uh, get the wolves out of the way that would actually tear the sheep to pieces. This is the picture in the Old Testament of this shepherd. Of course, Moses, what was his occupation? He was a shepherd. And with the birth of Moses, if you go all the way back to the second chapter, we saw with the birth of Moses, he has this miraculous birth, but also he has this miraculous salvation where the Lord keeps him. And what happened during that time? Well, there was the evil edict by the king to kill all the baby boys. Remember, that's Exodus chapter 2. This was a foreshadowing of what? Well, when Jesus was a baby, there would be another evil edict by another evil king. All the babies, baby boys under the age of two, Moses survived that. Jesus survived that, right? Foreshadowing. Interestingly enough, both their childhoods are in what country? Egypt, because Jesus would actually go down to Egypt. And, and again, if you remember our study in prophecy, that's Midrash, right? The understanding that the prophecies, remember I told you it would come in handy later, not just for prophecy, but it actually is for prophecy. Remember the whole scripture is prophecy, Genesis to Revelation. So Midrash, we actually see the unveiling or the continuous escalating unveiling of God's truth until we get the full fulfillment when we're forever in his presence. Then in Exodus, when they have... Um, 
The Exodus, of course we have the entire name Exodus, comes from when it is coming out of Egypt. The Exodus, not the book of Exodus, but the Exodus, the removal, the being set free from bondage, the Exodus of the children of Israel. Back in the 12th chapter, you remember that uh, there in the darkness, they had to have the blood applied to the doorpost. Remember, they had to apply the blood, they had to kill the lamb at twilight, and they had to apply the blood of the Lamb. Of course, Jesus died just before twilight. The blood was applied to the sins of the world. Those who would receive that blood, not everybody would, but that blood was going to be given. So we know that at that time when the blood was shed, that the homes would be passed over, right? Hence the name Passover. The angel of the Lord would pass over the homes with the blood, but he would kill the firstborn of those didn't have the blood applied. And so right then and there, we actually see another picture of Jesus this time as the Lamb, right? He's the Lamb that actually covers us, protects us from the wrath of God, the wrath to come, and we have that picture of Jesus. Then, approximately 1,440 years later, after the Passover, right? Passover for Exodus... Fast forward 1,440 years, give or take a few days. And Jesus would proclaim just before his death, just hours before going to the cross, he would proclaim that the Passover bread and the Passover cup was, guess who? Him. 1,440 years later. No one had written that. No one had stated that. It may have been revealed to some, perhaps Moses had already gotten that revelation, but he doesn't seem to mention it explicitly anywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus reveals, guess what? I am everything you've ever participated in from the time you were little Jewish boys. That was me. And now I take what was me and I institute a new covenant. Remember, back here is the old covenant. He institutes a new covenant that he would give his blood that the Lord would pass over us. So the whole of scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, reveals Jesus. Genesis to Revelation reveals Jesus. I hope that when you study the Bible, the longer you're saved, the more you see Jesus jump off the page. In books, you were like, wow, I always thought this was just some historical reference. And it is that, but it's more than that. He made this clear in his earthly ministry. Listen to what Jesus said to the religious leaders, John chapter 5, verse 46. Remember whose ministry we're studying right now. We're studying the ministry of Moses under the leadership of God, right? Jesus says to the religious leaders, and guess what? These guys revered Moses big time. They loved the ministry of Moses. At least they said they did. Jesus said to them in John chapter 5, verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. You know, I always make fun. You know that remember that planter off fruit when you call the jelly a jam jelly? Ah, The lady like about faints. That's the that's the response of these guys when Jesus says to them, All of the scriptures were about. Me. Of course, 
their response is worse than that. They actually want to put their hands around his neck. How dare you say Moses wrote about you? Moses never once said Jesus of Nazareth. I searched the scriptures, never once did he say Jesus of Nazareth. And how could you be from there anyway? If you're really this prophet, if you're really the Messiah, you would be from Bethlehem. Which they had no clue he was from Bethlehem. Nor were they remembering Isaiah 7, that a light would dawn in Galilee. So many times he has to pat them spiritually on the head and say, have you not read? Do you not understand? All of this was about me. I was, Moses wrote about me. Jesus could start rattling off. Moses wrote about me in the second chapter. Moses wrote about me in the 12th chapter. Moses wrote about me in the 23rd chapter. Moses wrote about me in the 24th chapter. Do you remember the the man that stands before them? Uh, It doesn't even say man, it says God. Have you not read that no one can actually look at God and live? So who do you think that they were worshiping with? It was me. Deified, glorified, fully revealing to them the Son of God come down from heaven long before Bethlehem. In Hebrews 11.26, we know of Moses. It says that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the riches and treasure of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses truly understood God's Son even then. He actually looked to Christ then. And then in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus speaking to the two men who were blinded by the fact that Jesus was risen, and they they didn't seem to understand, although they were not opposed to the Lord, they actually loved the Lord, but like the Pharisees, they did not know that the Scriptures all spoke of Jesus. And he says to them, Ought not the Christ, Luke 24, 26 and, 7, 26 and 27, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, of all, did you hear that? Look at where Jesus starts. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures concerning himself. What a Bible study. When you get to heaven, Jesus is going to show you verses you never dreamed of were about him. You would, they'll have, they'll have missed, missed us completely. I was, um, uh, Marty and I got together yesterday to talk about the upcoming men's retreat, and I, was share, I told him, I said, look, you know, I, it dawned on me as I was studying, that this isn't, I don't think it's new, but it felt new to me. Uh, you know, things that I may have thought before, uh, but I've forgotten that I thought them, so they kind of feel new. All the collective knowledge of every person from Abel, I'm talking about the believers, everyone that's ever given their life to God, been saved, their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, from Abel to right now, all of our collective knowledge of God fits in about a thimble. In spite of thousands and millions of books, That's how little we understand of the revelation of God. And what's important about that is because God is always drawing us into a deeper understanding, and yet we've barely touched the proverbial tip of the iceberg. Truly. But the revelation of Jesus throughout the Scriptures, it reveals these many facets of His glory, 
of his character, of his love, of his purpose, of his power, of his judgment, of his mercy, and our need, even if we don't know it's a need, a lot of times we don't, our need to understand these truths and to respond to them with greater and growing appreciation and worship to God. Abraham, according to James two, uh, James three, um, sorry, James two twenty three, you know Abraham was called the friend of God. Isn't that a great term? How'd you like to be known as the friend of God? Well, if you're saved, you now are, because Jesus said in John fifteen five, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. And without question, one of the relationships, there's no doubt about it, without question, one of the relationships that we have with the Lord Jesus is that of friend. He's our friend. But would you agree with me, he's not like any other friend. Jesus is not like any other friend. Yes, he's faithful. He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, and yet... He's actually a friend that we stand in awe of and reverence. I can't think of any other friend, even if you have friends that you you think, you know, if you watch NFL football and guys that have played on the same team for 14, 15 years, maybe they played with Peyton Manning for an entire career, and they would consider him a friend, but they still say, well, you'll hear them say sometimes, I sometimes just stand on the sideline and watch, and I'm just amazed that I actually got to be here at this point of his career, and just some of the things he does just amaze me. And that's just a tiny, almost ridiculous statement, because sports is full of hyperbole, making things seem monumental when they're really not. In the annals of history, no one will remember some of these things. But Jesus truly is awesome, right? That you would actually consider him friend, but if he takes off even a tiny bit of his humanity and reveals his glory, you'd stand at all. More than you could comprehend, more than I can comprehend. The great hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. You guys know that hymn? This great hymn, it was written in 1855, it was put to the tune that we know today in 1868. And it's comforted and been sung by believers for uh, going on just about 150 years. What you may be unfamiliar with is the last two lines, the last two lines of the final stanza. Listen to the last two lines of the final stanza of what a friend we have in Jesus. Soon in glory, bright unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. See, he's not like any other friend. This friend you'll worship in matchless glory, bright and unclouded for all eternity. I believe this is part of what is being revealed uh, to Moses on the elders when they actually see the Lord God standing there on sapphire, waiting for them. They, all right, we're going up the mountain. We're going to worship on the mountain, Okay. We actually, we've seen uh, the the clouds, we've seen the thunder, we've seen the lightning, we've heard the voice of God. I guess we'll just kind of go up and uh, halfway up, all of a sudden standing there, I don't know how he's standing there, whether it's arm folded or arms outstretched, is 
And they might have even asked, who is this? Moses might have told them, that's the Son of God. If it was actually the Father, although he is the Father too. How does that make sense? I'll explain it to you later. He's actually the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all in one. Well, how are we looking at him and living? That's because he's the Son. And they see this glorified revelation. And I believe part of what's being revealed is to them and the elders that the world is not actually their home. The world's not their home. That the Lord is saying, as the clarity of heavens are under his feet, this is where you'll be headed. You'll actually not just walk up a mountain, but like Enoch, you'll keep walking someday. And this is where you'll spend eternity with me. And I want you to understand who I am, that you never waver and serve and worship the gods of the Canaanites, which are not high and lifted up. They're no gods at all. If you've been with us in our Roman study, they're nothing but wood and carved images and false promises of peace, where the Prince of Peace is the real thing. And they come up there, and the Lord wants them not only to remember that the world is not their home, but that they would grow closer in this relationship. And their worship would become more glorious that seeing the Lord high and lifted up would remind them as they have time in the future in prayer, wow, we know whom we worship. And we can tell the people who we worship. Because God didn't just, this wasn't just Moses, this was the elders as well, that now the 70 fan out and make sure that each of you have this ministry to proclaim. Turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Notice something about the first verse of the 17th. See if you recognize something that was also in Exodus 24. You should see it in the very first line. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up. After six days, God told Moses to come up. Jesus and the Father are one. You think Jesus did six days by accident? After six days, he brings them up the mountain by themselves. And what takes place? They see him transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And guess who's on the mountain with him? And Moses and Elijah appeared talking with them. I'll stop there. I don't, we won't go through the whole rest of the story. You actually see God weave together Old and New Testament in a matter of moments because not only did the elders go up, not only did they see the, uh, the glorified Lord Jesus, but then Jesus, knowing the end from the beginning, repeats the same pattern. Again, Midrash is what? It's the continuous playing out of the revelation of God, and it oftentimes will follow the exact same course 
In other words, it'll be the same shape at a different time. Different mount. Different mount. This is not Mount Sinai, but very similar. After six days, Jesus leads them up. Then they see Jesus glorified. Jesus is glorified. They hear the voice of God. We know that God is actually there in the 24th. Not only uh, Jesus, but the speaking is the Father as well because we've seen it already. And they actually see Jesus in a way they hadn't seen him before. Now Jesus, they had already seen, if you were walking with Jesus, they had already seen Jesus do miracles. They had already seen Jesus do some things that uh, were convincing them, Lord, no man can do these things unless unless he's come down out of heaven. You can't heal people. You can't speak to the wind and the waves. You can't do the things that you're doing. And yet, this is, in John's case, John is one of the ones, Jesus is still not yet revealing more of his glory to John. I mean, think about it. Think about John specifically. John's here. John would probably, and the other disciples, might would say, this is kind of interesting. Moses went up on the mountain with God, and now we're up with Jesus glorified. We're with the Father. Eventually, they'll actually hear the Father's voice, and Moses is here all over again. Remember, Moses wasn't going to go to the promised land. Guess where Moses is at? The promised land. Standing there. But the picture of Jesus, again, they had seen Jesus call them. Remember, they were each called as disciples. They had seen him minister to them as a friend. They knew him as a friend. But they also saw his power when he would heal people or cast out demons. And they're like, no one has the power over the demonic realm. Like, you know, even the man of Gadara, the demons were petrified of Jesus, scared to the point where, like, please don't condemn us already. And they would see his power, and now they see him shine like the sun. Another passage talks about his, his clothes being white like launderers, just completely white. But that's not the end of John seeing Jesus manifested in glory because then eventually we'll see Jesus on the first day of the week after the resurrection. He'll see the risen Lord. Now he sees the Lord who's conquered death, the one that can actually walk right through walls, right? Here's one place, the next second, boom, he's somewhere else showing his godhood of just, I will show up in anyone's life at any time, be aware and ready for my return. But then, turn to Revelation chapter, same John. Again, John has seen him as a, as a miracle-working ministry. God has, uh, John has seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration. John has seen him post resurrection. And then just prior to the resurrection, of course, I already mentioned the Passover, the night that Jesus said, the cup is me, the bread is me. John says he was the one with his head on Jesus's bosom. John says he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> he actually loved all the disciples. But, but, uh, but Jesus at that time, John was quite young, and Jesus had kind of a just like you as parents, you don't treat all your kids identical based on where they're at in their maturity, right? And so John actually, uh, he, he realized that Jesus treated him gently at, at his young age in the faith 
And that's why he would kind of use that the disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple that Jesus kind of really tenderly cared for, really brought me along. And then John would actually live to be an old man. He would actually be the only one not martyred for the faith. He would actually outlive all the others. But here he is, elderly now, on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, And he's there, as the Scriptures tell us, Starting with um, verse 1, I, John, your brother and companion tribulation, and in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, first day of the week. I heard it was at work. I heard a trumpet and a loud voice behind me saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, to Pergamos, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia. And I turned to see the voice that had spoken with me, and I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet. There's the feet mentioned again. And girded about the chest with his head. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flaming fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice is at the sound of many waters." Go on. Look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I felt his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Also in the 24th chapter. Remember it says on the elders and the nobles, he did not lay his hand. But by clear inference, the Lord Jesus actually lays his hand on these men he's called up. What does he do to John here? He lays his hand. Now, John had already seen Jesus glorified majestically on the Mount of Transfiguration, but Jesus unveils even more here to the point that this time John falls as a dead man. And John had seen him raised from the dead and had seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration, but yet there was more depth that Jesus revealed here than had ever been revealed in his lifetime. Now think of how long John had walked with the Lord. This is what I believe Paul was speaking of in Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of both the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul's saying there is no end to the depth of the knowledge of God that he can't reveal. I believe, some don't believe this, but I truly believe that for all eternity, God will continue to reveal things. And you'd say, well, it can't be forever because uh, that would mean that he would never stop revealing something new. Exactly. See, God is infinite. Just like he has no beginning and no end, there's no end to his revelation. None. I, I truly believe that all eternity, we will always learn something new about the Lord. And John's life gives a little microcosm of it, and so does the life of Moses. The revelation keeps taking place. And it, in its essence, it keeps expanding. And not always in uh, maybe expansion in our terms of uh, bigger bangs, but always expanding in what the person needs. Because God knows what we need, doesn't he? Not what we want, but what we actually need. 
those that worship, those that worship the Lord in obedient surrender will experience communion and relationship and intimacy with God that many will never see. Many people won't see the relationship with God that they could have had or that God has given to saints of old that he truly would give to us. I, I mentioned what Chuck Smith said, you know, we, we're the ones that limit the blessing of God, that he bids us to come closer. And then not only do they see the Lord in this, in this beautiful manifestation of his glory, but he lays his hand on them. Can you imagine the strength that you receive if Jesus lays his hand on you? We're told as elders to lay hands on people. It's only symbolic of the fact that God throughout history lays his hand. He rests his hand on those he has called or healed or strengthened, right, or encouraged. God's hand, it's either on you or against you, right? You don't want it against you, right? You don't want him to beat his fist together, as he says towards the children of Israel, in rebellion. But you actually want him laying that powerful, gentle hand. That hand, when you think about the heavens and you realize that the universe, the longer we look, I talked about that superstructure that they found that is four billion light years wide, that dwarfs the distance of our galaxy to the next galaxy. It's incomprehensible how large the universe, and God holds it in the span of his hand. And we don't even know if it's infinite. And if it is, he's outside of a dimension of the universe, which, which he actually is outside of a dimension of the universe. And we don't know where heaven could possibly even be then. Right? And yet, that same hand rests upon them. And later, it'll be important that they know whom they believe in because some are going to go after a golden calf. Some are going to say the, the promised land can't possibly be taken, right? Some are going to say Moses is never coming back. Some are going to say, oh, this guy isn't really, Moses and Aaron, they don't really know what they're doing. They're not called by the Lord. Do you realize all the other distractions? And then the Lord is saying, whatever comes, remember what you saw here. Don't forget to worship and stay devoted to me and actually draw nearer to me. And notice what happens. They also have a meal there. I don't know where the food comes from. Did they bring it? Maybe. Does the Lord need them to bring food? No. He already proved that with manna. Right? He doesn't need them to bring any food. You're up here on the mountain. Why don't you have a meal with me? All right, we'll run down and get some. Don't worry about that. Got it taken care of. Later, Jesus would do something similar with some fish and loaves. How are we going to feed all these people? Don't worry, just tell them to sit down. Uh, we don't have near enough here. Tell them to sit down. All right. Let's go tell them to sit down. They'll eat air, but uh, no, they won't. But Jesus right here have a meal. Later, he would have it with the disciples, wouldn't he? How long I get, I, I long to have this feast with you, he said. Then, of course, he wouldn't have it again until, and we don't know what was in this meal, we don't know what they ate, but they ate and drank. 
Perhaps a little private Passover meal with the Lord. We don't know. But the nobles, he didn't lay his hand on them. The nobles, the children. What God wants you to have is so opposite of what the world thinks is worth having. The nobles, while they were in Egypt for 400 years, and this happens in every society, while they were in Egypt, like every other society, they began to classify some people as better than other people. It's in every society around the world. It doesn't matter if you have, like India does, a caste system, which is actually codified strata over the, over the centuries, although supposedly they don't so much go by it anymore, but we see that it's still, it's still in existence. But in every society around the world, you have the, you've heard the word aristocracy, right? The upper crust, the well-to-do, right? The 1%, the 10%, right? The upper class, the middle upper class, the middle class, the middle lower class, the lower class, and the poor, right? And you have this list of people, but the nobles, you know, Moses wasn't the richest guy. He was just the man God chose of the people. There was people that came out of Egypt. Remember when they asked their neighbors for a bunch of gold and silver? Some of them made bank that day. Some of them added money to their already prestigious position in the community. People thought, hey, uh, you're one of the nobles of Jacob. We don't have a king, but somehow you're more noble than the rest of us, right? And so there was, a, there was some that actually, and don't, don't be surprised when a group of them built a golden calf. You know, in Jesus' ministry, it says that there were some that Jesus did not commit himself to because he knew what was in men. He wasn't laying his hand on everybody. He was laying his hand on those that were drawing near. And where are you at? Are you drawing near? Are you like the nobles? You have a high, lofty thought about yourself, but not so much about the Lord. He doesn't lay his hand on them. Matthew 25, 29, Jesus said, For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from he who does not have, even what he has will be taken away that we want to invest in the things of the Lord. I'm going to move quickly here. Let's look at delegation. One thing, one thing in Genesis 12 through 14, God's not going to delegate. Now, there's actually other things that he doesn't delegate. But one thing clearly, going back to the 20th chapter, God spoke the Ten Commandments. The original speaking forth of the Ten Commandments came from the voice of Almighty God. It was not given by Moses. Then God says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there. God wants us to be there. Say, where is that? In his presence. Waiting on him. Lord, I don't really like to wait. Be there. <laughs> that is a great... If God says just... Here's an email from God. Be there. Period. Be there. But when you get there, I've got something for you. 
I'm going to give you two stone tablets, not a scroll, not a parchment, not written by men, literally my finger, the same finger that touches stars and actually can move the stars around, do whatever I want with, the same finger. I'm going to write in tablets from the mountain, chiseled right out of the mountain, I'm going to write these Ten Commandments for you, and I'm going to give them to you. I'm not delegating that. I'm doing that myself. What your responsibility, when you think about what God delegates to us, you're going to have the responsibility of then, then taking them back to the people. They've heard my voice. Now they'll actually see my handiwork, my actual fingerprints in the stone. Now God delegates to us, doesn't he? If you're a parent, he's loaned you children. He's delegated them. He could raise them himself, but he gives you the instructions on how to raise them. If you're someone that works as a deacon in the body of Christ, we have elders in this church, uh, ministry leaders, those of you that serve and actually oversee a ministry. Uh, by the way, I, I, I personally say thank you. We actually, I, I made an appeal for some to, uh, to actually serve in children's ministry, and, and we actually had uh, at least one other family that I'm aware of uh, come forward and say that they would do that. And I was downstairs earlier thanking uh, Joe and Diane Reap and just, they don't have kids down there. They don't have any kids that age. And they serve, just like uh, Bill and Cheryl and others. That, but they see that God has delegated them responsibility. And then to serve in that responsibility and to minister to others. It's important. You know, business leaders, the, the great business leaders, I didn't even want to read some of their quotes because I actually, when you actually understand some of the quotes, some of these business leaders have been incredibly successful, but they're also so worldly that I couldn't bring myself to quoting from them. And yet all of them understand the value of delegation. You'll never achieve doing it all yourself. Now, God can. But he wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. I was talking to a couple recently. I said, look, God's given you a lot of commandments, and he doesn't overwhelm you And making sure that if you don't do every single one on the very second he gave them to you, that he is going to consume you. But we know that he wants us to give all of our time to him, all of our talent, and all of our treasure. Does that mean, well, if I'm supposed to give all my time, that I can't actually work? I do a Bible study 24-7 at my job site and everything else? No, no, no. He gives you the responsibilities. Then the overflow of his work in your life, you reinvest even more of your time with him. That starts in your home, but it also is lived out in the body of Christ and actually giving to the Lord there, and, in your, and the talents and gifts He's given you. And financially, as the Lord has blessed you, you bless back with the first fruits, and the God will do these things in your life. He'll bless you, and it's, it's God entrusting you. This is why we call it stewardship, right? He gives you an ample amount of His goodness, your body, your blood, your framework, right? Your time, your talent, treasure. He says, I give you these things. I'm delegating them to you. Now thou distribute them as I command. Well, how would I know how to do that? You would read this, right? This is the lamp unto your feet. How do I now 
walk in the delegation that God has given me. For Moses, he knew what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to lead them to the promised land, and while he got them there, he was supposed to keep teaching them the same precepts again and again and again. Which actually is comforting to pastors like myself because I'm like, if Moses was supposed to reteach the same precepts, I can feel pretty good as we go verse by verse just reteaching what the Lord has already put down on paper. And he's delegated all of these things. You're supposed to do them with your kids. I'm supposed to do them with my kids. I'm supposed to do them with you. We're supposed to do them with a lost and dying world. We've been delegated. We've been made his ambassadors, right? He's the king, right? We're his ambassadors. He sends us out. We see this in Proverbs 31, 11, The heart of her husband safely trusts her. The husband could delegate to a godly wife. Delegate these things. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, Then the twelve, some of the multitude of the disciples, said it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. See how the body of Christ works together? God delegates down. The, the role of my foot has a different delegation than the role of my hand. If that were the case, you'd see me waving my feet in the air right now instead of my hands, right? That would look odd. Maybe in some culture it would be normal. I don't know. But here, you know, we have a different use. But they're, they're ordained and delegated, and God has delegated Moses. I want you, you have, you have really a single responsibility. Lead them to the promised land. Follow everything my angel says to do and keep teaching them the word and reminding them of the covenant. Is there anything else you want me to do? That's pretty much it. I'll take care of the rest. I got breakfast with the manna. I got the ravens coming in. I've got everything else covered. You just do that. Well, what do I do? You teach Joshua these things. Joshua's called what? His assistant. The first administrative assistant mentioned. Remember I said great leaders are great followers. Joshua's being trained as an apprentice. Moses delegates things to Joshua. He delegates to the elders. We see he says to the elders, you guys stay here because God has called me. Well, why you? Why are you so important that God's called you up to the top of the mountain? You know, notice, notice none of them say that. If they said that, they were not the right guys to be up on the mountain and actually see the Lord. They actually fully understand that Moses' calling is not better, just different. You guys stay here, worship and pray, and if the people have a great need, I've left Aaron and her in charge. Isn't it great when your kid's grow enough that you can actually leave one of them in charge? It's a blessing. Children are heritage of the Lord. They're arrows in the hand of a mighty man, aren't they? That's why when I, I, I had... Uh, um, I can't tell the story because you might listen to it on, on, uh, when, we're, when we're live on the internet. Yeah, it's, it's coming. We, we really will be live. But I've had conversations. I'll, 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 because I had a conversation this week that I, with a guy that I invited to this church. But I've had conversations with people before where they really wonder, how, how do I do this whole parenting thing? How do I raise? And, and, and I'll show them what the Word of God says and say, look, if you don't follow him, there are noodles in the hand of a man that doesn't know the Lord, but they're arrows 
in the hand of a mighty man. You ever seen a marksman with an arrow? If they're off, it's instead of hitting dead center bullseye, they're an eighth of a centimeter off dead center of the bullseye. But I would rather be that close than not even anywhere near the target. Right? And so God gives, we see how he delegates, teaches us how to delegate. Wouldn't you rather learn from God than anyone else? That's why I'm not quoting the business leaders. Because they also are tainted sometime in their delegation. God never does. He's going to follow steadfast precepts. One last point on this. Um, Moses has given this. And what I've given you, what I have written, that you may teach. There are so many pastors today that are teaching things other than what God has given. You could underline your Bible. What I've given, that you may teach. It excludes, God says, you're not allowed to teach what I haven't taught you. Well, I found that so-and-so has a really good idea, and it, it, it seems to better explain. God says, no. Teach what I have taught. Don't deviate. That you may teach. You start to incorporate oh, just a little bit of what Pharaoh in the Egypt, time in Egypt actually taught us. No. That you may teach. What I've given you, don't deviate from it. Paul writes, this is what we share. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and verse 13. I'll read them both. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but that the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual so is Paul saying that we teach things that are mystery, therefore they can't be understood? No. They're only a mystery to the blind, unsaved eyes. Once you're saved, God reveals them to you. It doesn't mean you'll understand all the depths of God. It means you'll understand what he said to do. Right? You understand what Jesus meant when he says, I am the new covenant. You understand that his blood is the covering. You, these things are no longer, now they are awesome, but they're not hidden from us anymore. They're revealed to us and continue to reveal it as we grow. Let's close uh, with design, God's design, verses 15 through 18. We come to a close here. Then Moses went up to the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and covered six days. On the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. I remind my girls from time to time that God loves math because he uses numbers a lot. It helps them come over the ma- uh, mental hurdle of math. I truly do that. I say, look, God created math. Numbers all through the Bible. Wait till you get to the dimensions of the tabernacle and all these other things and how many cubits it has to be. and everything. I said, he loves mathematics because he created it. Said, so you can love it too and embrace it. But I use this word design because nothing God does is by accident, right? He doesn't do anything arbitrarily. When he did six days and the seventh day he calls him, there's a purpose for it. It re-mirrors, right, the six days. And then the seventh day is not only a day of rest, but it's also the second half of the seventh day. It's also a time of deep worship to the Lord, right? 
Six days shall a man work, the seventh day rest. But here Moses is called up into the presence of God to hear from God, to worship God, to rest with God. Everything's by design. God is a God of order, isn't he? That delegation is by design. That us being devoted to him is by that Jesus is deity. Why is Jesus deified in so many different manifestations of glory? By design. Different times, different place, different purpose. Some of them I understand, some of them I won't understand until I'm face to face, and you won't either. But God does everything by design and by his divine design uh, divine will. He's desiring what? That each person grows and matures. David said in 1 Chronicles 28:19, uh, 1 Chronicles 28:19, "All this," said David, "the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me." Did you hear that again? "By his hand upon me, all the works of these plans." It's actually speaking of the temple, but God actually lays his hand on us, and he reveals to us his plan, his design. Now, sometimes we don't see the unfolding of the design of the plan until well after the fact, right? But when we do, it's no less glorious. As a matter of fact, a lot of times it's more glorious because we realize what we thought seemed to be incongruent, uh, things that made no rhyme or reason, how does this relate to this? We can look back and see, wow, it's like God was actually moving chess pieces, perfect precision, almost like a clock synchronized. Oh, by the way, it is because we were prepared before the foundation of the earth for good works that would actually fall into place. I was visiting with someone recently. I said, look, I'm here with you tonight. God knew I would walk in at this exact time. But only if I'm being led by his delegation, if I'm walking in devotion to him, if I'm listening to his voice, and actually he reveals more. And then when he, you can't give to people, I've said this before, you can't give to people what you don't have. If you don't have a deep relationship, Lord, what will you give? Now, you can't give them the relationship with the Lord. You give them a testimony of relationship with the Lord. Only Jesus can give them the relationship. You give the eyewitness account, which is what Moses' whole ministry would be, an eyewitness account. Why is Moses and Elijah on the mountain with Jesus? They're still an eyewitness to the faithfulness of what they had observed in their earthly lives. So the, the, the apostles, they had read the Old Testament. Now they have Moses and Elijah standing there abreast beside Jesus, and they have the eyewitness account of saying, everything you've been reading since the time you were this big, true. Exodus 24, right here. The feet on the sapphire, they're physically testifying that God's design will not fail will it? Not going to fail. It's foolproof. It will actually come through. Now, the other people would close with the, the, the congregation, the, the people. Verse 17, the sight of the glory of the God was like a consuming fire. They, their eyes, it says that their eyes were, were looking at the mountain, and it just was a consuming fire. It didn't stop burning and raging. That's not such a bad thing. They were fixated on the fire of God. A.W. Tozer said, while looking at God, we do not see ourselves. Blessed riddance. The man who has struggled to purify himself and has had nothing but repeated failures will experience real relief when he stops tinkering with his soul and looks away to the perfect one. 
they're at a distance. They don't have the relationship that Moses and the elders have. They're still at a distance. They God actually asked them in the 20th chapter to come near, and they refused. Remember Moses said, come near, and they wouldn't come near. Uh, Moses' first glimpse of God was a self-sustaining fire on what? It was on the bush, right? That, and it was the same exact mountain, same place. Moses first saw God as a, as a fire, but it wouldn't consume the bush, and Moses could realize, I don't know if he realized it then or if he realized it at some point, but boy, is that not a picture of himself. It's a little scraggly bush. Moses is 80 years old now. little scraggly bush, and it's not consumed by the fire. Instead, it's purified by the fire. That's what God does with us. We're a scraggly bush. As, uh, as um, Dr. Rogers, we're a bunch of nothings, right? But it consumes the dross and the sin and the filth and all these things out of our life. Those who come first to God as they're looking from a distance. If you go back to chapter 20th chapter, I'm not gonna, you don't have to turn back there, but I want to read it to you real quick. Now all the people witnessed the thunders, the lightnings, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then said Moses, you speak with, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you. Odd verse, don't fear because you're supposed to fear. Don't fear because you're supposed to fear the Lord so that you may not sin. That's the rest of the verse. Did you know that from that time, I went and looked at, there is no mention. Moses said, God wants you to have the fear of the Lord. There's no mention. Even though people say, we will obey, we will obey, there's no mention ever from there to where we're at yet of the people actually having the fear of the Lord. Doesn't say they had the fear of the Lord. I know who did, for sure. The 70 elders and the men that went up because they saw a deeper revelation of God. The people were still looking afar off. They were still looking at God as a God of wrath, which is not a bad place to start, but you don't want to stay there because God had revealed so much more of himself to them. Remember, he said, I'll bless you in all these different ways in the 23rd chapter. Did they forget that? Did that go over their head? Those who first come to God by fearing him in holy reverence, they come first by the fear of the Lord, they will continue to grow in the Lord. You know Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is it not? Right? Where do we find wisdom? From the Word of God. Well, God's spoken to them. He does want us to have a reverent awe of Him. The problem in the body of Christ today is very few do fear the Lord. How do we know that? Because we know the licentious lifestyle, the lukewarm body of Christ, in so many ways, doesn't fear the Lord. This is why Jesus came to Laodicea. They had no fear of Him. The fear of the Lord is a good thing, but it should change us, shouldn't it? Psalm 25, 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear them, and he will show them his covenant. See, the Moses and the elders, they also feared the Lord. But they had that beautiful, harmonious relationship in which, and I, I want us all to walk in this, that there's that fear of the Lord, that reverent awe, but that what a friend we have in Jesus. 
you can't have one but not the other. Amen? Well, for me, Jesus is a friend, but I have no fear and reverence of him. Well, I fear and revere him, but he's not my friend. I just stand afar off. People that stand afar off, after a while, they no longer will fear him. And they get, after a while, they see the fire for so long, they're like, yeah, yeah, God, he can do, hey, he can do earthquakes, he can do this, it's just, well, that's just everything around us. You know, after a while, their fear and reverence is reduced. You can only stay there for so long, and Moses says, you've you got to draw near. You've got to experience a meal with him. You've got to come closer to him. You've got to actually walk with him. He can't be just your friend. He can't be only the consuming fire. He has to be both by his design. Amen? They're still afar off. God wants us to experience his glory and his grace. Amen? Amen?